I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Leah DeHaan, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Leah, Dahan, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Listeners, you're probably noticing that we don't have Agnes again this week. She's back from Finland. You'll be glad to hear. She made it back, but she is not feeling particularly well today, so she's she's not in. So we've had to uh, forge on ahead without her. <laughs> But she'll be back soon, we hope. But um, this is actually the last in the series before we go on our summer break in any case. So the timing is opportune. Congrats, Agnes. But Leah is a colleague of ours in the communications department. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is great. We've given you your kind of pod debut today. Definitely. How's it been? How's it felt? It's really exciting. You did your first interview. I did. I think it went well, but I guess everyone will be able to tell for themselves. Yep, 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 yep. No criticism. No (laughs) criticism needed. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was wicked. Looking forward to listening. And it's actually quite a big week, isn't it, at Chatham House here? Because we've got quite an important conference going on. It's the Gender and Growth Policy Forum, which is a two-day conference. Uh, It's the first time we've had it at Chatham House. And there's some great panels which are all looking at how um, gender needs to be taken account in policy making. And it's based, it's part of a relationship that Chatham House has with the W20, which is a group which looks to inform the way that policy is shaped from a gender perspective um, and provide recommendations to the G20, which is the group of the 20 biggest economies in the world who meet every year to discuss what the hell is going on. All the important things. Yeah, exactly. So it's really important that gender has a kind of seat at the table in those conversations and this is what this forum is all about. So we have for you this week two interviews by people who were speaking at the conference. Leah, who did you speak to? I spoke to Sergei Serbov, who is the Deputy Director at World Populations Programme and he discussed with me um, how we need to think about ageing and it was a really, really great conversation. Nice. And who did you speak to, Ben? I spoke to Rosamond Ebden, who is the head of policy at Plan International, which is an NGO that seeks to improve the lives of children and particularly girls and make sure that they're properly represented in in policy uh, discussions. And they've recently just published a new report about women and leadership. So we sat down and had a chat about that. Great. Let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined by Rosamond Ebden. Rosamond is Head of Policy at Plan International, and we're here to talk about a new report from Plan International, Taking the Lead, which was published in partnership with the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, and it presents the findings of a consultation they carried out with 10,000 girls and young women about leadership and their expectations of leadership. So, Rosamond, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, thanks. So could you maybe tell us a bit about where the report came from? Why did you do it now? So Plan International is an international children's rights organisation. We work with children and young people across the world uh, with a particular focus on gender equality and girls' rights. And as we can see, progress against achieving commitments to equal representation in roles of leadership is really stalled. Progress is 
only being very slowly made. And over the last few decades, we're seeing real problems in uh, achieving much stronger female leadership in different positions of power. So we felt that it was really important to hear the voices and perspectives of girls and young women to really understand what it is that they believe... um, leadership means and what inspires them to be leaders what motivates them and what are the obstacles that they're facing so what can you tell us about the number of girls that you reached and where they are yeah so we surveyed girls in 19 countries across the world so Mm -hmm. north south different regions Mm -hmm. representing low medium and higher income countries and we also conducted um, qualitative focus group discussions in five countries as well to really um, bring out the sort of qualitative uh, aspects of our understanding and the girls were aged 15 to 25 and so what did you find out well We learnt that girls and young women actually do have strong aspirations to be leaders. Almost 76% of the girls that we, part of our research, said that they aspired to have leadership roles in the future, which is, of course, very encouraging. Mm. Um, We also found that overwhelmingly they were very confident in their ability to lead, which, again, is a a really big positive thing to, to understand. However... What they were not confident about is how the world would respond to them Mm. in leadership roles. They are very aware of the sorts of challenges that female leaders face and they have very clear perceptions around the barriers that female leaders face. And as they grow in age, their aspirations to lead tend to decline as they become more and more familiar and exposed to the the gender um, stereotypes and gender norms that discriminate against them. And so when they were thinking about the sort of societal barriers to obtaining leadership roles, I mean, what what did they have to say about that? What were those barriers? Well, a very large number of girls, 60% of girls, actually feel that women leaders have to work harder than male leaders to even gain respect. Mm. And overwhelmingly, more than 90, 93% of girls actually believe that female leaders will experience unwanted physical contact. So sexual harassment is a sort of, uh, it's to be expected that that goes with the territory of being a female leader. So this is, yeah, pretty pretty um, worrying stuff. Uh, and they believe that women are treated more harshly and more severely criticised. And so these are all barriers that um, start to really put off a young girl who has aspirations and is confident that she can lead, but faced with these sorts of what feels like quite a hostile environment, um, it starts to obviously undermine girls' aspirations. Yeah, absolutely. And what steps do you think that society could take that would enable these girls to feel more empowered to take leadership roles? Well, um, I, you know, I think we need to be really thinking very hard um, from a young age about the gender norms that surround us, that we're all socialised into, and the gender stereotypes that we grow up with and really start to question um, whether we are intentionally or unintentionally reinforcing those such that we're giving messages to girls around the things that they can and they can't do, the things that they are and they aren't suited to do. And I think we all need to be um, taking uh, measures and actions to to really uh, look at how those different biases 
and stereotypes are prevalent in the in the family, in the community and in the organisations in which we work. And we really do need to be making a concerted effort to, to understand them from the perspective of girls and young women and to take it to take positive intentional action to really address them in the places where we have power to do so. Mm. Thinking about those stereotypes, do you think that um do you think that one of the problems is that society still imbues ideas about what good leadership is with kind of masculine characteristics from a stereotypical point of view? Do you think that actually what we need to do is we need to change how we think about leadership as a thing? Yes, and actually what's very interesting is that the research shows girls are defining leadership for themselves in, right. a, in a different way. Um, so, as you're saying, the sort of um, characteristics that we associate with leadership, which we also associate with masculine characteristics of of being dominant, assertive, power to and, and controlling, quite hierarchical, and maybe using your power for your own personal gain, that's not how girls are defining leadership. They are aspiring to be leaders who are concerned with achieving social good for the for the wider community the, mm. um, to bring about social justice to bring about gender equality they want to see leadership through collaboration and um, through compassionate uh, bit of, uh, see leaders as compassionate leaders and to uh, respect and listen to colleagues um, and others and to empower those who they are working alongside uh, through their leadership. So it's quite a different style of leadership that girls can relate to. And those are the sorts of attributes that the role models that they really look up to and they really value having need to be um, demonstrating. But I just wondered whether, um, as you were reading this, as a senior woman, a woman in a senior leadership role at a big organisation, did... Did what did this testimony kind of chime with how you felt about leadership when you were their age? Do you think that there is that there has been a sort of generational change? Or I, I guess I always thought that leadership was um, something that uh, I might be able to do. In, in fact, I do remember wanting to be the head of, a, of an NGO office in, right. uh, <laughs> as a young twenty-year-old. Um, that is what I aspired to. But actually, I, when I think about it, I did face a lot of the challenges um, and my own aspirations did start to change and also you know as you um, have a family and you start to, to have the challenge of work-life balance etc many other barriers start to become evident but I also benefited from line managers from bosses who were empowering and mm -hmm. did enable me to overcome some of those barriers to work flexibly to you know have confidence in my own ability etc so I do think that I benefited from some very positive uh, female role models myself mm, absolutely and now it's uh, it's early days you only published this in June this year but from that perspective what's been the kind of reception of the report do you feel like society maybe post uh, me too post these scandals that are being revealed do you think that society is ready to have this conversation I, I think it is I think it is I think there's much more awareness now around the the, the gender norms that shape 
you know, what we think and the way we behave, the the stereotypes that we're all, you know, subjected to and we may unintentionally be reinforcing. And obviously the Me Too campaign and others are really bringing that to the fore. Um, in the media, we're much more conscious now of how the media impacts on the way that we view females and female leadership. Um and so um, I, I think it, I think it's it's ripe, and there are many young activists out there who are already leaders in their own fields. And Plan International works with a lot a lot of them. We 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 support them to you know to have their voice and to have platforms where they can really bring these issues to the fore. So yes, I think now is now is the time to to really start to get a grip of this and really um, start to take action. So you mentioned the importance of having strong female line managers for your own career as you were going up through the ranks. How important is having the right role models going to be to this? And where can we find those role models for young women? Yeah, so actually the research showed quite clearly that girls value the support of their families. One of the most enabling factors actually for them is having a supportive family a family that's willing to support their aspirations whether they fit whether they're in line with what girl you know the expectations of girls are or whether they're breaking the norms and breaking the barriers that's the most important thing for girls and then it's about having supportive community as well but beyond that it's i think it's really important that we are looking at role models within the uh, the, the workplaces that we're we're working in, mm. and questioning whether we are role modelling ourselves this this wider vision of leadership, and I think it's incumbent on those of us who are now leaders to really start to role model and to have a more collaborative and empowering style of leadership. Uh, and I think we need to be we need to be putting in place concerted efforts within the organisations to, to really um, understand and address the sorts of issues that young women are facing. And in fact, we ought to be uh, reaching out to, to girls and young women and, and asking them, well, what is it that encourages you to work here or to, to take up a particular leadership role? And what is it that puts you off? And help bring them to the table and enable them to help us actually understand the problems and, and shape the response to those problems. I think that we uh, we need to be creating safe spaces for girls. What they said was that in the in the in their families and in the communities, they really valued being able to talk to their their friends and their peers about uh, their aspirations, but also the challenges they face. And I think we need to be creating that and supporting families and communities to do that. But we also need to consider how can we do that within our workplaces? What is it that we we can actually put in place that enables young women to, to, to talk together and um, really uh, share their own concerns in a space where they where they feel that they're going to be listened to and they're going to be responded to. We also can look at how we can build the connection between female leaders and, and younger generations, perhaps through uh, mentor arrangements, mentorship schemes. Um, so I think all of those sorts of actions can be are really important and the sorts of things that we need to consider um, how we can start to um, put in place in all the different sort of environments that we're finding girls and, and young women wanting to aspire to lead to. And where can everyone find this report? Uh, yeah, it's available on Plan International's website. Um, there's a long report, there's even a, a more technical report, and then there's a, a summary as well. And just then thinking about other responses to 
to these findings. Do you think there's a role for government in trying to empower women into leadership roles like this? Yeah, I mean, I think in you know setting girls up to succeed as leaders, there's a really important role for governments and education ministries and bodies to play in ensuring that girls have access to and um, achieve a, a quality education, ensuring that the biases and um, discrimination is not reinforced and not reflected in the school environment or in the curriculum that they're studying. So that's, I think that's a very important place for us to be um, starting. And there's also a role for governments, of course, to support civil society um, groups of young people, um, civil society organisations that support young net, the networks um, of young women and, and young girls to, um, to, to really grow their own experiences of leadership um, through activism. One of the things actually that girls told us was that gave them more confidence was having practice mm. at being leaders. You know, so leadership roles in school, for example, yeah. on school council, in clubs, in associations, in the, in the wider community. So actually, you know, um, supporting uh, the educational system to provide girls with those opportunities, supporting organisations outside to give girls the opportunity to learn the skills and really, um, you know, build their confidence as leaders. I think is really important and I do think there's a role for government in doing that. Of course there's also uh, legislation in place or that, that needs to be legislated if it's not there around protecting against sexual harassment in the workplace and there's a um, an important role of course for um, the the leaders of organisations to then make sure that there are mechanisms to to um, to report harassment where it is seen and to uh, to to follow the to follow the law and legislation that's in place. So, I think um, you know overall there there are responsibilities for for everybody, but certainly responsibilities for government. Rosamond Ebden, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so, very exciting. Uh, today I am joined here with Sergei Shurabov, who is the Deputy Director of the World Population Programme at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, you are here at Chatham House for the Gender and Growth Policy Forum. How are you finding the conference so far? Oh, that's that's a very interesting conference. And that actually... There is a lot uh, in common, I think, with some, about some prejudice in, in gender area with the prejudice in ageing. Ah, so brilliant. I, I find a lot of, 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 of common things. Well, that, about, a lot of about stereotypes. Well, that is a great segue to my first question, um, which is, um, so your recent research has focused on developing new ways of understanding ageing and understanding when someone is considered old. Could you tell me a little about this and how this is different from previous understandings of ageing? Okay. Actually, uh, what happens now, it's just that most of very prominent organisations, governments, you know, United Nations, they're all talking about, and media, they're all talking about uh, this silver tsunami that is coming. They, they usually uh, look at different measures of ageing, such as median age of population, that's half population above this age, half population below this age, 
or they often talk about the proportion of people above a certain old age threshold yes. and dependence ratio, which is extremely popular measure of, of aging. Uh, uh, dependence ratio is measured today as a, a proportion of people, uh, the ratio of people above age uh, 65, sometimes yes. 60, uh, to uh, people from age 15 or age 20 to age 60 or 65. Mm. And they're all threatening us with this huge challenge that is going to be in this century because this dependence ratio is double, triple, is four times high. So that's what uh, media and, and different sources uh, tell us. But in fact, what is happening, basically, we use the same notion of who is old. You know, there is a quote, Age 65 is generally set as a threshold of old age since it is at this period of life that the rates for sickness and death begin to show a marked increase over those of the early years. Right. Now, when this quote was stated, mm. people would usually say, well, maybe 10, 15 years ago. No, 1960. <laughs> So it's more than 100 years past, yes. and we still consider people old at age 65. People are completely different. People at age 65 have different physical abilities, have different cognitive abilities, have different level of health, have different prospects of life uh, after the 65, mm. remaining life expectancy. And we still measure everything at age 65. So whether the person was living 100 years ago, whether the person is going to live 100 years from now, yeah. it's old age threshold. So basically, what is missing, uh, characteristics of people. Mm. People have completely different characteristics. And this is extremely important mm. because if, for example, 100 years ago, people were not studying at age 50, they were not buying houses. Today, people go to universities at age six. They change their career. People buy houses at age 70. Why? Because they know that they still have quite a bit of time to go ahead. Mm. So that's why we thought that we should never look at chronological age. Chronological age is only one characteristic in, in multidimensional sort of uh, aging process. Yes. And it's not only in time. It's also, it's also in space. Like 60-year-old woman in Japan is very different from 60-year-old woman in, in Upper Volta, Burkina mm. Faso. So it's also in space. So we should look at characteristics of people. Remaining life expectancies, for example, is one of the characteristics. But there are many more characteristics, like physical characteristics. Mm. So that's what we should use to identify this sort of old age threshold. And then the, all measures of aging look completely different. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So having spoken about ageing, to what extent is this related to fertility rates? Well, it is very much related to fertility. It, it, it is at this moment it is very much related. Because what means ageing? Ageing is, you know, the shift, at least as it, as it is a standard definition, a shift of population towards older ages. Again, it's very important what do we consider as an older age. But it usually costs... At least today, it used to be caused by 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 drop in fertility. You have less young children. Of course, proportionally, have more more people at older ages. Yes. But uh, of course, uh, increases in life expectancy they also contribute. So when population sort of uh, you know experience for quite some time 
that decrease in 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 infertility this uh, age uh, pyramid may stabilize uh, and basically it may be sort of about the same age pyramid but here uh, what comes in, in, into role it's just life expectancy so for many developed countries today mm. life expectancy is becoming a more important issue and what happens that if you traditionally measure with traditional measures like proportion about population above age 65 then increases life expectancy they lead to increases in aging because more people survive above age 65 however if you introduce a dynamic threshold of who is old mm. and one of these measures uh, these dynamic measures can be uh, age when remaining life expectancy is say 15 years and less right this is what is basically now sort of a standard uh, in defining old age threshold this new measure of mm. aging then if you remeasure this aging with a new way then it may happen then the high life expectancy the less aging occurs right because if you measure with high life expectancy this old age threshold is moving up and for example uh, today in United Kingdom, uh, old age threshold, I think, for women is something around 72 and half, 73 wow. in the country. For men, it's about 70. Right. So that's where people might be considered old from this different perspective. Mm, brilliant. So given that women have traditionally taken on a disproportionate amount of the elderly care... How do you see the aging of the population affecting women across the world and what policies are in place or can be designed to alleviate this pressure? You know, it's again uh, uh, taking care of. Uh, who takes care of whom? I mean, it's if we, if we think uh, that old people are at, the, at age 60 or at age 65, that's a very different thing if you look at people old with, you know, this dynamic old age threshold. At age 65, at age 60, uh, it's not really care. You don't need to care about these yes. people. These people care perfectly well about themselves. When you talk about care at the older age, it's also very, very, very different. We had some time ago paper in Science where we introduced a different indicator, which was called uh, adult disability dependency ratio. So we usually look at people who are disabled. It doesn't matter at which age they're disabled. You, they, people can be disabled at age 40. Yes. And people be completely perfect at age 80. Like my father, my mother, my father was two years older than my mother. My mother was pretty sick. My father at age 82 was caring, taking care of my mother. Yes. Basically, almost no one was helping them because they did perfectly well. Mm. So uh, you need to take care of people when they're really, really sick. From my point of view, what is important in this sense is just especially to look at, 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 at women who are living alone. Right, that's interesting. Because uh, it happens that usually in most of the surveys, although women are living longer, uh, many women reporting that they are unhealthy. So if you compare the increase in healthy life, in, in life expectancy, usually it goes in parallel, men and women. Mm. But if you look um, at the so-called uh, healthy life expectancy yes. measures, then usually men healthy life expectancy goes in parallel with their life expectancy and women it just stagnates right. from my point of view and we did some research on that that's often uh, because women that that usually this measure come from reporting from mm. subjective feeling about their health yes. 
Like, how do you feel? Do you feel healthy? Do you feel unhealthy? Do you have uh, um, any limitations, uh, mm. uh, activity limitations, and so on? This type of different mm. questions which are being asked. So they're fully self-assessed? Yes, they're fully self-assessed. So when man is asked about this, he usually lives in general with a spouse because she's younger, her life expectancy is higher. Mm. So if he has some minor disabilities, he would always say, well, he may not even notice them because there is someone nearby who always helps him. Yes. Uh, when woman is living alone, and most women are widows at so the upper ages, then of course there is no one. First of all, it's a huge trauma. She's alone. Uh, it's psychologically. Then there is no one around to help her. So it's just that many things are sort of multiplied. Many, yes. many, many things are multiplied. So I think this is very important. It's just psychological and some type of different help uh, for, for especially for women at, at older ages. That's really interesting. Because that's, they usually live, they may be living alone. Of course, there are people, uh, houses for old people, but still, it's, I think it's different. And I think that's the reason when, at least partly, in many cases, women would report uh, lower health than, than men at, at higher ages. Now, your research also suggests that at some point population ageing will end. Um, why is this and what effects do you see it having? Well, uh, if you measure ageing in a traditional way right. with a fixed old age threshold, it will never come to an end. Because if we assume that life expectancy is growing continuously, mm. well, at least... Uh, at least for the last 50, 60 years, it was for developed world about 2, 2.1 years per decade. Just increases. Wow. Okay, there are some sort of slow coming back, some, some uh, com coming downs, but in generally that's what's happening. So if you use old age, uh, traditional old age threshold, 65 or 60 years old, of uh, and aging will never stop because there will be more and more people uh, beyond this threshold. Right. But if you consider it differently, if you look at the pop, at the old age threshold as we suggest, as a dynamic old age threshold, which depends upon characteristics of people, and remaining life expectancy is one of characteristics, there are many, many more characteristics, then, uh, as I mentioned before, the higher life expectancy, the less aging happening. So when your age composition is stabilizing, so births are basically not affecting the age composition, then uh, there will be basically less and less people beyond this dynamic old age thresholds. So aging may even come uh, to an end and, right. and there may be sort of rejuvenation. <laughs> the population may become younger. Brilliant. <laughs> the interesting thing is that when we look, for example, population of, of United Kingdom, uh, I think the most longest time series, at least for, UK, for, 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 for England and Wales. And they go for centuries back. So if we measure aging in a traditional way, of course, there's aging, you know, median age increases, uh, proportion of people above age 65 increases, dependency ratio increases. But if we look at the dynamic old age threshold that we basically standardize median age or measures of aging with increase in life expectancy, the population becomes younger, much younger. So the whole history just drives the population to much, much, much younger age if it's standardized with increase of life expectancy. 
So this is also particularly interesting, I think, when you think about areas of the world where the average age of populations is low or even going down. Research says that in Africa, the average age of the population is 25 years old. Mm -hmm. So how does your research relate to these places? Well, you know, it all depends upon how fast there will be drop in fertility. Very often it is associated, and basically that's in many cases the major reason where fertility is coming, uh, is, is, is declining, is that education of women. Education makes a crucial role. And the moment women becoming educated, fertility drops. Mm. Just take a case of Iran. Iran, say 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, had one of the highest fertilities in the world. More than seven children per woman. Wow. Today, it's, it's below replacement level. So it's less than two children per woman. Why? Because enormous education of women. Wow. So and Iran, Iran is is forecasted as one of the fastest aging countries, together with Korea, with some other countries. So today, like in many African countries, maybe that's not the case, but it may happen very fast. Right. This this drop in fertility may go fast. That gives the first initial push for the aging, and then other things play a role. Great. Now, you've spoken a little bit about this initially, but what are the best indicators for predicting when someone should be considered old? It depends what we are, where we're looking for. For example, probably if we are talking about, you know, starting playing on violin, maybe age 20 is already, you are too old. At this <laughs> yes. point, right? Uh, if you become a president of the country, sometimes at age 60, they are too young. So uh, it depends. It depends on what you are, want to do. But in any case... Uh, it's, it should be, you know, this, this threshold in general, of course, should be dynamic. Uh, if you look, for example, at cognitive, at a certain moment we need mostly to, to, to look at, at, at cognitive abilities, then we can measure cognitive uh, abilities of people. There are a lot of tests that allow us to, to measure cognitive abilities. For example, uh, some recent research shows, I think German research shows, that people keep their cognitive uh, skills uh, creativity, especially people in, in creative type of, of jobs, they keep their uh, uh, skills up to age, say, beyond age 70. Right. So which means that people can work perfectly well in creative type of types of job uh, far beyond age 70. Mm. In, 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 on the production line, also there was a research, uh, Axel Burch Supan, German, uh, German economist, uh, the, the research also showed that people are perfectly well uh, working until age 65, even on production line. And moreover, older people, although they may make more mistakes, but mistakes are much less serious than younger people are making. Uh-huh. So if you combine this thing, they basically they may become more productive. So uh, I think that this is, this is, this is, this is extremely important to, to take into account. And basically, uh, I think one of the uh, worst things which is happening it's when, you know, international organizations, governments, they put this stereotype, that 65, you're old. Yes. It just changes the brains of people. When every time, every day you're said, you're old. Once you're 65, you're old. You're old, you're People start feeling old. Yes. I think it's extremely important that media, that, that, that you know, it just comes, 
they put completely different perspective why people should work longer. People should work longer, not necessarily because governments messed up with, with financial policy, but simply <laughs> because people live longer. Yes. They live longer, they have to work longer because they're in a better health. If they're not working longer, then yeah, they put all this burden on, on the shoulders of their children. So I think this is this is extremely important that 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 people simply have to work longer because they are living longer in they're better in a better shape. Perfect. And that leads me to my last question, which is what policies can we devise to help us ensure that the economy and employment and our society evolve along with our aging population? I think that people at older age it's it's a great asset. And uh, unfortunately, although formally, you know, at the European Union level in the United States, there is a lot of discussion, no age discrimination. Yes. I, I think in the United Kingdom in, in, in 2011, there was some act taken that there, there is uh, no limit, you know, no mandatory retirement age. And many European countries are the same, but still many companies, many organizations, they still try to push people, uh, you know, away yes. uh, when they reach certain age. I think that this simply stereotype. Mm. This is prejudice. This is stereotype. This is, to a certain extent, discrimination. That's exactly what is the topic of this conference, because people have stereotypes. These stereotypes, in many cases, are developed and pushed further by by media, by what we read in 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 in, a, in a newspapers, in in very prominent journals. That okay, people age sixty five, age sixty five, sixty five, old, old, old. Mm. Okay, if you read it every day, that you start feeling old. So whatever is coming to your mind, sometimes it affects your behavior. So I think that uh, media should play a very important role in changing people's mind, mm. people's perception of of who is old, Great. and that would give a lot of benefits. Great. Well, thank you ever so much for coming in and speaking to us. It was really, thank really you. fascinating. Thank you. thank you ever so much. Thank you very much. Brilliant. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you enjoyed listening to those really interesting interviews. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is actually going to be the last episode before our summer break. And in the meantime, there will be a few episodes that may go out of like previous content that we've done or generally some other audio from events that have happened at Chatham House. But we will be back with our regular new programming in a few weeks' time. So... Thank you very much. Have a lovely summer. And I guess I should just say thank you very much to Leah Dehan. Leah, thanks so much for stepping in today. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. What would you say was your most, what was your big takeaway from your conversation with Sergey? I think that the thing that I learned, which I hadn't thought about previously, is that when thinking about elderly care, we focus on couples who age together and who look after each other, but that actually women tend to outlive their partners mm. and they their experience of being elderly is very different because of this. So they will say that they, they struggle to do household tasks more than couples because they have to do them all by themselves and that elderly care needs to reflect this and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Cool. Well, 
anyway, that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much. You can uh, subscribe to Undercurrents through your podcast app of choice. Please do. We've got over 40 episodes now of, uh, of some cracking interviews. And you can also follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. But all that remains for me to say is I'm Ben Horton. I'm Leah Dehan. And you've been listening to Undercurrents.